Uh, we are working through a, uh, a series, working through the book of Exodus, which we started last year, um, and we're taking a little bit of time um, over the last few weeks um, to look at, in particular, Exodus chapter 20, where it talks about the Ten Commandments. Um, so we, this is actually our last week doing that, and then we'll pick it up again in the new year, because we're going to have a few weeks uh, in December, looking at the Christmas story together over the next few Sundays. Uh, so if you want to find Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to get right into it. So we're going to read, first of all, we will read um, verse 2, which gives us a nice kind of way into each of the commandments, where it says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Every week it's important we remember the context of these commandments, that God is bringing these to a people who are already redeemed, who is already rescued. And in verse 4 it says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let me pray. Jesus, we ask for your help this morning as we look at these words together. Uh, we never want to take the Bible lightly, but we want it to speak right into our hearts, into our souls, into the very depths of our being, and we want it to bring us ever closer to you, to our Father. We want to know you. That's our heart's desire, and we pray that this morning as we study this together, that you would speak to us, that you'd work within us, Holy Spirit, and bring us to the Father. Amen. Amen. I was in a, in a bookshop this week. And often when I'm in a bookshop, um, I like to go to the kind of what's often called the religion or religion and spirituality section of the bookshop. Uh, just I'm always interested to see what books they have there. And I was in one this week, had about three shelves of books about spirituality. Uh, and there wasn't one book about Christianity, not, not even one at all. Um, there was maybe one book about Islam, a couple of books about Buddhism, few books about Gandhi, um, but no other kind of major religions were represented at all. But instead, there was a whole pile of books that I guess you could loosely call kind of self-help books. So there was, there was one called The Mind Gym. There was one called The Power of Now. Uh, there was one called The Tiger Awakes, which I was particularly excited about. And there was one called How to Breathe. There's a whole book about how to breathe. It's amazing. Um, but what all these books have in common, as you can tell from those titles, and there was three shelves of books that all basically had the same theme, that to somehow to find this spirituality, whatever that is, to find God in however you might define it, that journey starts within looking within yourself. Uh, to somehow there's some kind of hidden meaning to life, some kind of hidden purpose that you just need to kind of let out from within yourself or in the very kind of depths of who you are. 
And that's kind of a little bit where we were getting to last week. We were talking about, uh, in the first commandment, it says, you, have, you shall have no other God before me. And we were looking at what that means for us today to have other gods, to have idols, false gods that get in the way, that stand before or in front of the living God who we worship. Uh, and one of the conclusions we came to last week is that for many of us, many people in our city, um, the, the thing that often stands between us and God is the idol of our of ourself. Our culture is all built around the premise that we are the most important person, and our mission in life effectively is to keep us happy. And that sense of individualism then means that any kind of higher meaning or deeper purpose has to be found within. That's where the journey always starts. And that really is one of the huge kind of bookmarks, uh, big factors of our society is this, if you're going to talk about it negatively, you call it narcissism, this kind of desire for the self, even to the point these days where there's such a determination to find out who you are that everything else is just seen as a barrier that gets in the way. So even these days, people talk about even their, their physical body being a barrier to who they truly are inside, that gender is just kind of a social construct that gets in the way of who we really are, and anything material or obvious or real is actually fake compared to what we believe inside, because what we believe about ourselves is the most important thing. We just have to find this kind of divine spark inside to really get the most out of life. Um, and in the end, it's just, just another religion. It's just another way of worshipping. It's just the worship is focused within on ourselves. Anything else? And it's not even that new, to be honest. The Bible uh, often counters this. You know, Paul talks about it in Corinthians and he counters it where it in those days, it would have been called like a Gnosticism, this kind of idea that spirituality, you can kind of find it somehow, it's either this kind of mythical thing out there that you can grasp upon, or there's something within here that you can search deep inside to find. And you might think, well, do you know what, that's, that's not me. You know, I'm, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, you know, I'm here in this building, aren't I? Just shut up and leave me alone. That might be what you're thinking right now. But the reality is, for many believers in Jesus, followers in Jesus, Christians, whatever you might call yourself, this can be just as dangerous for us too. That we can reimagine God effectively in our own image. That we can, we can kind of start to peel things away and remove things and cut things off from the God of the Bible to try and find the God that is acceptable to us the God that really works for you. We can reimagine God in a way that we feel most comfortable with. Um, and in the end, we end up just doing what this commandment tells us, tells us not to do. And a good way to see this is if we, I'm going to do a bit of a, unfortunately there's a bit of a spoiler here, but if we go ahead in the story to Exodus chapter 32, this very thing happens to the, the Israelites. They break this second commandment. They decide to reimagine God in their own image because we get to Exodus 32. This is 12 chapters later, but they're still here at the mountain. 
Moses is up at this, the top of the mountain and they get frustrated. They're like, where has Moses been? He's abandoned us. He's just up there with his holy huddle with God. What about us? Um, and they get frustrated. So what they do is, it's not going to make a lot of sense to you what they do, um, but it does make sense in their context. So they, they take gold, uh, like gold rings and earrings, and they put it into this big fire and they make a golden cow which to you guys is not going to make a lot of sense why they do that. And then they take this golden cow, and it says in in verse 4 of Exodus 32, and they say, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Then they proclaim that the next day will be this feast for God. They throw this big party. They 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 do have all these sacrifices. They have all these offerings. And they, they try and worship God through this kind of golden calf, this golden cow that they've, that they've made. And the thing is, they've not, they've not turned their back on God. They've not rejected God. They've just recreated God in the image that is most acceptable to them. They've reimagined God, and they've, they've said, well, the, the one who rescued us out of Egypt, who took on this amazing redemption journey, is this golden calf. Which is bizarre, because they were there. You know, they saw it happen. They experienced it. And what they've done is they've taken what was probably most likely an Egyptian god that they would have worshipped when they were slaves in Egypt, and they've tried to incorporate that into their belief system now, into their religious structure. So we, still, we still like this god guy who Moses has gone up to meet, but we're a bit frustrated. He's not doing quite what we want. So we're going to take this element of our old belief system and kind of force it into what we believe. They've, trying to, they've kind of reimagined, re-engineered their faith. And again, you might say, I've never made a golden cow. I would imagine nobody here has ever smelted gold to make some sort of idol. I think we're probably okay with that one. So you could think, check, second commandment, done. I'm fine, stop talking, let's... Go home. But, you see, what happens is, all the time, even for many of us here who are believers in Jesus, we often try and take things and impose them onto God. And we tell God that if you're really going to worship him, if you're really going to give your life to him, then he has to be like this. He can't have this thing about him. This part of his character isn't acceptable, but this bit is. So we're going to focus on that aspect of God. And all the time, we can, if we're not careful, we can end up reimagining God um, as we would like to see him. We can create basically our own belief system. In the end, what we effectively do is we kind of replace God with our own image of God, which very much has us at the center to it. Us as the very pinnacle of what we believe. And what I wanna do is to help us to see this is to give you some, a, a few kind of symptoms that might help you to recognize how we do this, how we reimagine God in our own image. And I'm not just here to kind of condemn you, because some of these sometimes are, are true for me. There's times when, when I will do some of these as well. So the first one is, hopefully this should come up on the screen, there we go. first one is, I'll be happy when God g- 
gives me what I want. You can feel unsatisfied with life, frustrated like the Israelites were at the bottom of the mountain. When is it going to happen? And you live with this faith that is, is always kind of built around milestones. When I hit this point, then I'll be happy. So as long as God gives me this thing, I'll be okay. And then you reach that and you suddenly discover that that doesn't satisfy you. So you set your sights on the next goal, the next ambition, the next thing that God has to give you for you to be happy. And we treat Jesus as kind of like this genie in a bottle. And we just come and pray. And what we want really when we come to pray is we don't want God to come and shape us, but we just want God to do as we tell him to. Just answer me. Why, why will you not answer me? Why will you not do what I've told you to do? And what we effectively do is we find our joy and our happiness is, in the end, we find it and it's derived from his created things rather than from the creator itself. It warns us against that in Romans 1. And really what we have to remember is that our joy doesn't have to be dependent on your circumstances. That's what the Bible teaches, that ultimately our happiness, our joy, is found in Jesus. He's our sufficiency. He's our satisfaction. Not the things that he gives us, as in material, practical things. But we get to find this wonderful joy in his grace that he's lavished on us, which is far greater than any of these passing material things which will fall away eventually. The second one, what I do, even within the church, but what I do gives me meaning and value. I'm sure that's true for some of us. It's how you, how you really define yourself. If someone was to ask a question about, oh, tell me about yourself, you would say, well, well I'm Matt and I do this. And that's really where you find your meaning, your value, your purpose, your identity. And if someone was to take that thing away, it would crush you. We all have things in our lives that they're, they're basically sacred to us, they're holy to us. And we know they're sacred to us because if, they if they were to be removed, it would, it would break us. If you took that career from me, that opportunity, I don't know what I would do. Because your meaning, your identity is in that thing. It can even take place within, within the church. You can find your identity in that I'm, I'm the one that I'm, I lead this part of church life. I do this thing. That's even how you work out your faith with God is with a position, a title that you feel you've been given. And actually, we need to come back to the point that we remember that our, our worth, our value, is found in the fact that as believers in him, we've been adopted into his family. There's no greater worth than that, to be known as a child of God, to be called into a relationship with the living, living God. That's where you find your real value, your worth. The next one is... We, we must move past the church to find true, authentic spirituality. The church is just a hindrance. 
You know, this is just a kind of organized killjoy. If I really want to find God, then I need to get past this thing. I need to get to some kind of superior, higher plane of Christianity. I need to kind of advance on to the next level of superior belief, which the church is just going to get in the way of that. There's something, there's something better, something greater for me if I just get rid of all these, all these things that the church tells me to do. All these, this just gets in the way. And we can, we can live like that. We can, or, or, or instead, you can just bounce from, from church to church on a Sunday. You'll just go from the next place to the next place. Whatever, you know, who's got ever the, 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 the best musicians, the most entertaining preacher, or maybe the shortest preacher. You just go from, from place to place trying to find what suits you best. Whereas actually, God has chosen us, his people, to partner with him for his mission that he's working out here on planet Earth through the church, through the people of God. And the reason you're here in this city is because God's chosen you, he's appointed you, he's sent you as an ambassador to be part of his community and to reach out to those around us, but through the people of God. That there isn't another way if you read the New Testament. There's not some people were the kind of church people and other people were they, they just did their own thing. That's not how it worked. It worked out, the mission of God is worked out through his people. And we're called to build it. The next one is Jesus is the secret to my success. He is my life hack. And we can sometimes treat Jesus a bit like this, that we, we all the time we're seeking for some kind of success, some kind of victory, some achievement. We want to be kind of history makers. We want to change the world. We've got all these dreams and ideals and hopes Actually, in the Bible, the thing we're supposed to, to run after and pursue is Christ-likeness, becoming more like Jesus. And actually, sometimes becoming more like Jesus looks very unsuccessful, it looks very unglamorous. Some of the most faithful, loving believers I know, there's nothing remarkable about them at all. They couldn't give you a big, long resume of all the things they've achieved, but they've lived a life of faithfully loving Jesus. You know, if, if you read even the story of Jesus himself in the Gospels, there's not really this kind of wonderful glamour story of this amazing mission that he builds. People gather to him, and then they leave him. We wouldn't really deem that as very successful, if suddenly Liberty Church went from all this to maybe only seven people turn up next week, I think I'd probably feel a bit frustrated, a bit embarrassed. But it's not, it's not really about numbers and success. The Bible teaches our life is about pursuing him because he's already come and pursued us. Next one, I need regular encounters to know Jesus is still there. Now that can be an issue for some of us that we find if we're not regularly having moments where we feel like we've really had this kind of encounter with Jesus, 
that somehow something isn't working. Maybe Jesus doesn't love me anymore. He's abandoned me. Why is this happening? And we'll go to a conference or we'll read a book or listen to some special music to somehow give us that kind of spiritual hit again. That moment of transcendence where we can think, yes, this is what I live for. Now, I believe wholeheartedly that we're called into an experiential relationship with God. We can know God, not just in the way that you can know the author of the book because you've read his book, or you can know a character in a movie because you've seen the movie, but we can know God in the same way that we can know a father or a friend intimately and closely, that we can experience God. But we, we meet God in, in truth, not in just a feeling alone, just a kind of experience that gives you some kind of hit. If you're always bouncing from one thing to the next, you'll never really mature and grow up into what God has for you. The next one. I read the Bible to find out more about myself. You know, I sometimes will do this. I'll be frustrated or whatever, something's going on in my life and I'll, I'll open the Bible and I'll read it to try and find the answer for my situation. Somehow the Bible might explain what's happening to me in that moment or somehow it might just tell me some deep and meaningful kind of higher thing about myself. And often if I read the Bible like that, I'll find myself getting disappointed because the Bible isn't about me, it's about God. It's not about who I am, it's about who he is. This wonderful redemption plan that he's worked out. And then when you start to read it like that, how can I find out who God is? That's when you then begin to find it really feeds you. And you do suddenly begin to find out more about yourself because well, I'm made in God's image. So we open the Bible and it teaches us Firstly, about him and who he is. And slowly then it reshapes us into his image. Next one. Words like justice, wrath, fear, judgment don't fit with my picture of God. So one that lots of people will struggle with these days. They'll read what they might consider as the God of the Old Testament and they read some of the things that God is like, and it, and it scares you, and you think, I don't want to think about God in that way. He's my father, he's not a judge. You can sometimes think like that. The thing is that it's the same God, the Old Testament, the New Testament, all through your Bible, it's the same God. He's the same God today, he's not changed. We change, God doesn't. And you can't, you can't domesticate God. We try and do that all the time. All the time we're trying to reinterpret God in what's going to be acceptable to the world around me. Because if my friends knew that God was like this, they'd never come to church, so we'll just ignore that bit or take that bit away. We try and train God to kind of like we would a cat. Domesticate it just to make it fit with our worldview. But there's, there's an an otherness about God. There's a power, there's a sovereignty about God which you can't strip away. Which actually should be a wonderful comfort to us. Even the fact that God is a judge might scare you, but that should comfort you as well. 
when you look around on the evils in the world and know somebody is in charge, there is justice. There is ultimate truth. There's a sovereign God ruling over all of it. Those things shouldn't scare us, but should comfort us. The next one, Jesus would vote for my political party or he would care about whatever social, environmental issue that you care about. Sometimes we can become so focused on one thing that that can fill our vision and our faith can be interpreted through that thing. Whether it's a political cause, an issue of social justice, you see a need in society that's broken, that's horrible, and you get frustrated, then why don't other Christians care about this? Can't they see that this thing is important? And it is important. But when that begins to fill our vision, what's happened is it's just standing in, in, in the place of God. And we can give our whole life to causes rather than giving our lives to actually following Jesus. It doesn't mean we shouldn't care about these things. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do something about them. We absolutely should. But all of it comes out of a place of worship. Because Jesus, he calls us, so often it's like we call God into our mission and Jesus calls you into his mission. And he wants to restore what's been broken. He wants to fix a broken world. And he's the only hope, not any politician, not any famous celebrity with a cause to champion. Jesus is the only hope. And he calls you into his plan to work it out. Finally, I decide the charitable causes for my money, not the church. Again, that can be an issue for some of us that our faith is allowed to speak into every part of our life apart from our wallet. As soon as we begin to talk about money, you think, oh, I don't, I don't want anything to do with the church any, anymore because they're making it all about money again. Just this preacher who just wants his white suit and his big golden car. I don't have a white suit. <laughs> Not yet, anyway. No, I don't plan to get a white suit. <laughs> Unless they somehow become in fashion, and then <laughs> maybe I would. Shall I move on now? <laughs> but the thing is, when you're called into the family of God, it's, it's a sacrificial family. And God wants all of you. What, what, I, what I don't mean by that is God wants you to give all your money away today. <laughs> Come and throw it all here at the front, all of your money. That's not what it's about. God wants your heart we were talking about this last week. If money has somehow become an idol in your life, that any time a preacher talks about it, you get terrified, then maybe you need to do something about that. See, because for, for each of us, what can happen in our, in our hearts is we begin to paint a picture of what God is like to us. Through all these different things, this long list here, they're all symptoms of how we can create this image of what we would like God to be like, the kind of acceptable God to our taste. 
to our worldview, to how we feel today. We can paint this picture, this image of God, and we've not made ourselves a carved image, we've not made ourselves a literal idol, but within our hearts we've done exactly that. We've just made an image of God, which is different from what Jesus is really like. And this, this matters to God. It matters. He goes on to say, you shall not bow down to serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am, am a jealous God. He's a, he's a jealous God. And jealousy isn't a bad thing. Jealousy is a good thing. Envy, envy is a bad thing. Envy is when you desire to get something that isn't yours. But jealousy is desiring to guard something which is yours. That's what jealousy is. I was reading a newspaper article about uh, polyamory, which is that uh, anybody can have multiple partners, multiple sexual partners, as many as you want. And this, this newspaper article was about a couple that had decided to embrace this. And it was a horribly sad story to read because this, this lady told this story about how when they first started talking about it, she became incredibly jealous and protective. And then she realized that was a bad emotion she had to get past so they could really experience full sexual fulfillment by having as many partners as they wanted. And I thought, no, that, that jealousy, that wasn't a negative thing to put you off. That was a beautiful warning from God to say what you have here is this precious, beautiful relationship. Now you want, you want to throw it away to pursue all these silly things that that's somehow going to make you happy? And that jealousy was just a pang of warning. I just grieved over it because I thought, oh, how have you missed this? Because that was reflecting in our heart what God's like. His love for us, his people. Because God's got this jealous, fiery, passionate love for you. And he doesn't want to share you with anything. And when we create these images of God in ourselves that actually aren't like God at all, there's a jealous God who's calling you back and saying, no, come back to me. Not this creation of me that you've depicted. Come back to him. The true God, the living God. That might be uncomfortable because you might have to deal with things in your life that you think, oh, I'm not sure I can have this and have God at the same time. But he wants all of you. Not just whichever bit you deem, oh, I can give that bit to God, but I'm going to hide this bit away. That's not what it is to be a Christian. Because what, what comes next is a warning, which again, for some of us, we won't like this, because this is going to freak us out a bit. He says, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Iniquity means like when something becomes twisted, kind of torn out of shape. 
And when we reimagine God in our own image, when we kind of dethrone him and bring him down to our level, we, we, we twist God out of shape. We deform him into our own image, into what's acceptable to us. And if that isn't checked, even just a minor kind of twist, a minor kind of, let's make God a little bit like this instead, that thing can fester and grow. And in the end, what you've built for yourself is just another golden calf. Just something else to worship instead. Something that leads us away from the true worship of God to a false worship of God. And this is a scary verse. Because you think, well, if, if I, if I, is this saying that if I sin, then my children and my grandchildren have to pay for that? That's harsh. That doesn't seem right to me. But you've got to understand that, first of all, the, the, the Bible teaches that, that we're responsible for our, for our actions. That God holds us accountable for the things we've done. But also that sin has consequences. That it will f- affect people around you. There's a a knock-on, there's a ripple effect of the things that you do. Sin has a social consequence. It will affect people around you, whether you like it or not. And we can get tricked into this idea of this kind of, of sort of a personal, individual sin. We think, well, if, if I do this, I think this, it doesn't hurt anybody. No one even has to know. But even those things, they do have an effect because what they, they do is they lead you away from God. If you suddenly find yourself being drawn away from God, that's going to affect, if you're a parent, that will affect how you parent. And that's going to affect how they grow up. You know, what we did this morning with the, with the kids and the families, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a nice ritual. It wasn't just so they could sort of tick a box and one day say, oh, well, we did this thing, so our kids are okay. We were making a commitment, they were making a commitment in front of all of us to say, I'm going to love my kids and I'm going to bring them up to follow Jesus because I know that how I parent them will have a repercussion in their life and then that will have a repercussion on their children and into the future. It says in Psalm 79, from generation to generation, we will recount your praise and that's what I want to happen in my family. <laughs> From generation to generation, there's a family, a line of kids, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents that love to worship God. That's a wonderful vision for building family life, that we can pass something on from generation to generation. And the wonderful thing is that it says in 1 Peter that we were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, these patterns of sin, these repercussions, they, they can be broken by Jesus He can come and save you out of those things. Those mistakes that have been made. Because all of us will 
you know, if you haven't realized it already, you will one day that your parents aren't perfect. <laughs> They'll have made mistakes. And sometimes we can carry those as kind of wounds within ourselves. Well, I'm like this because they were like this. I'm like this because they did that thing. Actually, Jesus can rescue out of all of those things. He can ransom you. He can release you from those things to walk into freedom and wholeness with him. Not dependent on what someone else has done, but dependent on what he has done for you. Because this passage finishes with this wonderful truth that he shows steadfast love to thousands, or it could read to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commands. You see, God is he's a merciful, gracious God. And these Ten Commandments are about his covenant love towards us. This steadfast love that ransoms us, redeems us, saves us, that draws us to him. And although we try and remake God in our image, actually through Jesus, we're restored back into, into his image. It says in 1 John, beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's talking about a future glory one day. But even now, by his spirit, we're being renewed into the image of God. It says in Colossians 3, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you've redeemed us, that you've ransomed us, Father, that you've called us to you, God. And we, we know that in so many different ways, we've tried to remake you in our image, to reimagine you, to create a God that is acceptable to our preferences. And we, where we've done that, we just want to repent and turn our backs on that and commit our lives again afresh to following you, knowing that ultimately you're working all the time by your spirit to, to remake us into your image. And that's our heart's desire, to live up to, to what ultimately is true, that you've made us in your image, that you've called us now to be your children, to find our meaning and our value in you, to work out all our dreams and hopes through you and in you to make all our decisions based out of a place of worship and adoration all the time being transformed from one degree of glory to the next, becoming more Christ-like, more like Jesus each day. That's what we want to set our hopes on and our lives upon, knowing that all of that is only possible because we've been ransomed and rescued by Jesus Christ.